Welcome to the Five Phenomenon Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hazen. With me again is Ted Haycraft. He's actually still putting up with me. Yes, I, I, I wouldn't put it that way. Today uh, is my I is my pick. It's your pick. But you hadn't you said you hadn't seen it, and you were one to you had it on your list to watch. Yeah, I will, um um one thing I've been thinking about uh, lately is we're gonna do an egg timer to uh, how long our preamble of when we start talking about the movie before we actually drop the title. <laughs> But um, this this title basically, you'd mentioned a different movie by this same director. Yes, I did. That, that, I think we still should do it at some point. Yeah, and and I mentioned that I, there's another movie of his I wanted to see. But do you, I mean, do you have a intro you're chomping at the bit to do? No, other than this is an interesting. When this movie came out, this is an interesting time for me because I was coming out of my Holy Joe, my very religious days, where I thought I might go in the ministry. And I changed my, and I, got, I finally confirmed my ma- major as radio TV film at U of E. And uh, I was going to, I was becoming a very hardcore film obsessive. And I was right in the midst of the Coppola, Spielberg, Lucas, all that happening. And the movie Brats. The movie Brats, which I have my, I know, I know you, the folks at home can't see this, but this was my Bible. The book you're holding up right now. And on the book, yeah, it's called The Movie Brats. And in it, there was a chapter in Coppola, Lucas, De Palma, Milius, Scorsese, and Spielberg. And so with the lack of com- complete uh, buildup, you just dropped in the name. John Milius is the director we're talking about, and the movie we're talking about is... Big Wednesday, which that book was... On, the movie hadn't got released uh, when this book came out. It was on the verge of being released. Really? Yeah, that's how old this book is. Because the other movie you wanted to do was A Lion in the Wind. Wind, Wind and Lion. Wind and Lion, yeah. sorry. Oh. He, well, he's only, this is only his third feature film he directed. Right. Uh, he was a very... Dill- Dillinger was the first? Yes, and he was a noted screenwriter. But it's funny, is if they wrote this book today, they came up with this book, Millie's probably would not have a chapter anymore. You mean just because of the of the people whose whose uh, well, reputation? The, well, uh, think about it. Well, flourished. even Coppola is a little dicey, but he, Godfather's so big that it, it hold Godfather and the Apocalypse Now carries Coppola no matter what, even though he's been off the map somewhat. Um, but Spielberg's active, Lucas is active in his own way. Uh, Scorsese's active. De Palma, it's a little dicey there, but he's still making films. But uh, John, well, John had a and stroke. Writing too. books too. Yeah, but uh, John, uh, we'll make, we may talk about that later. But uh, his health reasons. But uh, he's, uh, yeah, he's way off that. And when I see articles now about these guys, the movie Brats, or the new Hollywood, or the you know the Biscuit Book, or the Rebels, and uh, the Easy, Easy Rider, Rider Raging Bulls. Uh, Milius almost is sidelined somewhat nowadays, uh, a little bit, I think. Well, he, he def- he, whenever he's mentioned, the sad thing with Milius is that it tends to be more from his force of personality, which, like, as we go more into this conversation, we'll go to, uh, we'll talk about my impressions of that. But Right. So, anyway, that's, uh, but yeah, so the, I, this is, re- the, the Big Wednesday is like, you couldn't get closer to the, uh, Somewhat of a kind of a ground zero for me, where I'm just really just uh, yeah, so much into all these guys and what's happening and reading for uh, Rolling Stone and uh, I, I didn't. Well, act- here, here, all I'm hearing right now when we talk like is the things are outside of the movie, not the movie itself. What's that? Oh, about Milius? Yeah. Yeah. Nowadays. Well, okay. Yeah. Let, let's let's. Let, I want to dive into that. That's the big thing I really want to pick your brain about. But let's. Sure. We want to start out. These movies are our talks on these movies are going to be spoiler filled. But beforehand, 
we need to we'd love to sell you on this movie and why you should watch it and ted do you want to go ahead and well um describe the plot of the movie and okay the plot is basically you're following three close-knit buddies they're all top flight surfers uh gary boozy jam uncle vincent and william cat um and the basically the film is divided up in chapters of these giant swells that they're gonna uh surf and it's a coming of a coming of, what you, coming of age story. The the chapters go make a three year jump usually between. The yeah, time. it goes like from the late mid sixties to the, the mid seventies, and uh, and then Vietnam War is, approaches in the background. They have to go through the draft. They uh, and that's kind of an interesting sequence, and the, the girlfriends and marriage and just growing up and how uh, and it's based on Millie's real. He was a surfer. And he was growing up at this time period in Southern California, and he uh, based a lot of it's very personal to John Milius. Uh, and it's also uh, I did I, this really keyed into me. I didn't I guess I didn't really put it together back in the day, but it's kind of his American Graffiti. Oh no! I, the yeah. first the first portion I definitely yeah. had that feeling to it. Um, this was my first viewing of it. As I mentioned earlier, this is the one that had been on my radar to see for a while. I, I knew people loved it, and I, for the most part, enjoyed it. One of the things I read about it that resonated was that Milius was aiming to try to make it the uh, How Green Was My Valley, with, <laughs> only with surfing. Yeah. I wrote this on the top just the day where uh, it was a huge box office and critical uh, failure. The thing you always tell me about it, uh, uh, we, we talk about oh, the trading points. Yeah, there were, at the time, John's still a very highly regarded, very expensive screenwriter. Uh, Jeremiah Johnson, The Life and Time of Judge Roy Bean, the Dirty Harry, their first two couple of Dirty Harry films. And he got to make this movie basically by cashing his chips on Apocalypse Now, which he had written but hadn't come out by this point. No, no. In fact, in, in fact, it was going to originally be like a 60-millimeter art film with George Lucas directing. Right. And then it turned into this big thing that Coppola took over. So Spielberg was so real excited. He thought Big Wednesday was going to be a big hit. And so George and Spielberg and John all switched one point with each other on films they were making at the time so that to make money uh, just a, as a friendship thing and start, George is filled with Star Wars and uh, Stevens Close Encounters so you can imagine how they felt once these all these three films came out and they didn't get George and Steven didn't get anything and, and John's writing a little, a little pretty on that we're definitely going to get into this one of the um Spielberg and Milius's relationship is a very touching one to me too. And I wanted to also tell you when I saw, I think I saw it in the theater, but we brought that in on campus on 16 millimeter shortly after because back then, on a, a, this is right before VHS came along, and you would play 16 millimeter films. The hot, I mean, they would be available to you shortly after the theatrical run, and you'd bring them in for campus. So I would. We had two different series. We had a, a series of older films, and we had a series of the real current stuff. I know you've mentioned one of these series on your episode. I forget the episode number, but yeah. the episode where I interviewed you, you mentioned one of these series. But I brought in. We brought in Big Wednesday. So I watched the thing two or three times at home on a projector in sixty millimeter. You know, because we you could watch it at your leisure before you showed it to the on campus. And uh, I really liked the film. Here's my takeaway back then, and uh, I will I will talk about this maybe uh, later and modify this. But my takeaway, it seemed to me also maybe I was listening too many much to the critics or whatever. It seemed to be a little flawed. It didn't seem to work. It didn't seem to coalesce together. What are the word you want? That to was use? your initial takeaway. My initial your... initial take, but I liked it, and I kept on watching it, 
and I've watched it over the years. And I bought the uh, VHS and the DVD. And I, I may even have a laser disc of it. And I and I now have the Blu-ray of it. And uh, watching it again this recently, I I, I uh, and watching and in just different portions. I really love this film. I can watch it all the time, even though I don't think it's it's got it seems to have problems that I can't articulate. Maybe you will see if we can uh, if you. I don't, I'm curious about your reaction. I don't is. know if it's so much problems, but um, I started to formalize a lot more my feelings about Milius because a lot of my uh, interpretation of Milius up to this point. From a filming standpoint, from a, from what he's done, is mostly his screenwriting. I mean, Apocalypse Now being the thing I've probably seen of his most and most, and he's a thing that he's said you know was rewritten beyond him, and you can tell. But then there's things like Jeremiah Johnson or his contributions to Dirty Harry, and the thing that that uh, I, when I was looking up stuff that was influential influential on him, John Ford seemed to be a big one, but he also talked about the, the Beats and mainly Kerouac, and. He, t- he, he was really, for someone who's known as a screenwriter, he bragged about not liking tight, direct structures of movies that go in a certain direction. And then um, the other thing I was writing a lot that clearly comes from all of his movies and the things that everyone loves about his movies, especially the movies he was writing in the 70s are, he was always kind of came with script doctor. I mean, the other famous sequence that is probably the most famous scene he's ever written is the Jaws scene. The uh, um, Indianapolis scene in Jaws, where the three characters compare wounds, and then he describes the USS Indianapolis, the ship that delivers the bomb. Um, and character is always what they would go to for him for script doctoring. And I tended to find that he was, he, he's always embellishing with character. Uh, he emphasizes more than anybody else character entrance, entrances and their introductions and how they initially introduce themselves to an audience. Almost every character's introduction in this movie or in a lot of his other writings seem to be very broad, bold, but at the same time give you an instantaneous sense of character with him. Um, that scene? You're, you're, yeah, you're waffling uh, on that. Yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to absorb it. I mean, so basically, but uh, to get back to my question, did you like it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Did you, did you like it? No, I did. Yeah. I mean, I, does it make sense though? What I'm trying to say it's, it's just a, I, I don't want to. I don't want to. I, I really, really. The movie's free flowing. That's yeah. I, think that's, I, the, that's I, the, I love and enjoy the film. Don't get me wrong. I really like this film, and I would. I I'd never get tired of it. But it just seems something's a little bit off on it. I want to maybe think. Uh, it's it's like like Peter Jackson doing King Kong. He loved it so much. He smothered it. Uh, he's so close to this. And he talks about it in the audio. Com- I was listening to John's co- audio. I com- do want to hear what it, what came from the. He just said he was so. This. He was. He goes. Oh, this is so personal. I, you know. I. I. I you know. I can't. Even, almost can't watch it. You know. And he's like, it's it's so. But the the music, uh, the, the score was the thing that came across most. Yeah. The, this is for, this very sweeping, romantic, um, very epic. Very, very epic, epic music, especially for uh, what's basically an intimate movie, an autobiographical right. intimate movie. Whereas like American Graffiti. It's funny. Well, there's a lot of humor in American Graffiti. There's not as much humor there. I mean, there's stabs, a lot of stabs. No, I got to take that back. There, there is, there's Milius humor, and then there's, uh, there's Lucas humor. American Graffiti, you, you, you just enjoy it. And there's a little poignant scene with Wolfman Jack, but you don't get this heavy. Uh, the thing I noticed most about the American Graffiti connection is that Big Wednesday, Wednesday is divided into four sections, and it's mainly in the first section, unless you want to combine somehow. American graffiti with more American graffiti, which would have come out around this time. And I'm actually a pretty 
big fan for I've only seen him more American Graffiti the one time and found it very underrated. It's a very innovatively edited movie. Well, see, uh, of course, you know, this whole time period here, I, I even the flawed ones, the good ones, the great ones, I love it all because it just brings back this exciting time of all these guys. You know, uh, Scorsese is going to be starting New York, New York, and, and uh, you know, and then uh, the Last Waltz is going on, and, and you know, uh, Big Wednesday, he goes in the Apocalypse Now, and, uh, and so, and it, you know, we don't know what George is going to happen. Uh, and and uh, I do want because before I dive into uh, big, my other big uh, take on the movie, what is it you love, John Millies? You've been selling me on John Millies for as long as I've known you as a filmmaker and as a writer. What do you love about him? I think it's the romanticism and the the epic. He he's a man out of time. He loves and he's you know he talks about the Bushido, the the cold of the samurai. He likes John Ford. He loves you know. He was working on uh, an epic of Genghis Khan when he had the stroke. Uh, we might. Uh, and one thing I haven't seen and I I got him. I, I need to take some time out. He did he did the Rome miniseries on Rome. Oh, uh, it, it's it's. I thought it was multi. Two seasons. It was yeah. two seasons. Okay. Uh, and I'm just thinking, I love. I'm a big history buff, and when I saw Win the Lion, I thought, Oh my gosh, this is just wonderful. And then I found out, Oh, he did a uncredited work on Dirty Harry. He helped write Magnum Force. Uh, Judge Roy Bean's a fun film. I mean, it's got its problems. Jeremiah Johnson's a pretty much, you know, a flawless film in some ways for me. So I was really excited. I, because he had this kind of, the, you know, I know there's controversy that he's like, he's always a white wing, crazy conservative guy and all that stuff. But uh, here's actually, that's actually probably a good segue into uh, the other take I have on okay. this, which, okay, we've been talking about how personal Big Wednesday is, right? Yes. Which would mean that we need to talk about John Millie's personality. Right. A personality that, even though you said he gets short shifted in things like Easy Rider, Raging Bulls, like I, I don't know, it's been a while. Was he? He might have been. No, he's uh, he's big in it. He's big in it. Yeah, in that book. But I'm he's saying, a big personality. I'm thinking, uh, I'm thinking of the digital world now and social platforms I, and articles now. I, I think he gets over. I think he he doesn't get in the pantheon anymore like I, he was at one time. I guess, but you we're think? talking about a man who is the basis of a partial basis of we John about, Goodman's character in The Big Lebowski. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm thinking off the top of my head. Uh, He's got the character in Zeroville. Um, yeah, and it, well, there's U.S. Uh, you know, and they're also talking about he's part of the USC mafia. All the guys that came out of USC, and then the Coppola and his gang came out of UCLA, and that whole group of people and Walter Mersch and all. We're that stuff. we're definitely also going to talk about a uh, and recommend a great documentary on Amazon Prime about Milius called Milius, where that's also where we're getting a lot of our information yeah. too. But over the years, have you shown me your Milius love and kind of pushed him on? I have always pushed back with Why? this teasing you, you, uh, with this teasing of him being so right wing. And and the thing that I've been thinking about a lot but here's the thing. He's he's not really No, like, no. He's not. It, it doesn't affect the movies. I mean, no, no, yeah. I'm not I mean I'm talking just on the political stance. Yeah. Like he like he's gotten this reputation that he he and this comes across in the documentary. He was really big into a contrarian thing, and he loves the myth making aspect of it. Yes. And he started becoming contrarian because he's hugely in love with military history, which make him, especially in the Vietnam War, pro war with Vietnam. And then he's also giantly loves his guns. He famously would get uh, have studio contracts to give him guns and cigars with a lot of the scripts he was writing. Yeah, instead of money, he would they, they would they would deliver. No, I think he got money too. On that well, he, he would deliver. They would deliver a collectible rifle to him in a limousine. 
you know, show up and here, here's your rifle, Mr. Milius. And he would have a big bear stuffed and all kinds of stuff in his office and guns sitting on the desk. And yeah. So the philosophical contradictions were always bug me just because, like, he describes himself as a Zen anarchist, is his, <laughs> his inherent philosophy in life. But, but I, in the documentary and a lot of stuff I've read, read around him, they also kind of describe him as, like, cartoony. Just because, like, the movie that I've seen of his that in the documentary they describe is kind of destroying his career. And a movie I remember as a kid vaguely, my dad liking it, but when I saw it as an adult, I thought it was an absolute crock of shit, was Red Dawn. Mm. And the time it got really crushed because of it, even though it was a box office success, but being very, very jingoistic and very pro-military. And, like, even in the height of the Reagan years when that stuff should have been well, but, accepted. But, yeah, but... Do you still don't like Red Dawn still? The politics in that movie are pretty. What are the politics? I mean, or do, I don't know. I don't. Do we want to go into all this? I just. Yeah. I, I mean, do, to I me, do. to me, it's like, what would we do if we were invaded by Russia uh, in our land? Would we not uh, do guerrilla warfare? Well, it's also what would we do if aliens invaded us? It's just it's such a randomly hypothetical thing, and also the, there's such an odd so, sense of other with that that scenario where like a land war in the middle of the '80s, as opposed to a nuclear strike, just it seems so bizarrely absurd. And also, okay, Red Dawn was recently remade, right? And uh, Milius had the quote because it was North Korea came to North Korea is not going to have a land invasion against us. But the funny thing is what Milius' quote about it was, if he were to do it now, he would make it Mexico. Right, I, I know. But again, he might just be doing that to stir the pot. Again, with John, here's the thing about you don't he, know that he's he's poking at you or he's really telling the truth. Here's the thing about provocateurs and people who stir the pot. They stir the pot. The pot's stirred. <laughs> and you, they have to deal with the repercussions of them stirring the pot. Well, in Hollywood, you do. I mean, half the time. The, that's... The, 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 half the documentary is almost a tragedy of him not understanding the repercussions of all this myth-making. Okay. The other big thing I wanted to talk about was, th- that seemed apparent in Big Wednesday, with the How Green Was My Valley, is the John Ford influence. And yes. And it's a lovely thing. I, over the last few years, have really gone down a rabbit hole of John Ford. There's something about John Ford's filmmaking that's deeply appealing to me just because he seems like it's, it's extremely sentimental. That's the thing that Big Wednesday and it this carried. Like, there's a, a streak of sentimentality that goes through Big Wednesday. Does that sound fair? Yeah, I mean, and, like, I, I it's when you start keeping that in mind when you watch it, it's like when Bear, the character of Bear, who's a certain, he makes surfboards in the movie, he's kind of the older surfer, in the movie, kind of their mentor of the three boys that you follow, he uh, they're at a party at William Cat's house, and uh, he sees them dancing. And then, and the thing about Ford films, the rituals, the, all the rituals that the soldiers go through, and the dance sequences, and the and and that's a very big thing with Ford. And that's so, a good point. so that's in Big Wednesday, the there the rituals are there, but we don't. It's hard to see them because it's so contemporary. But they're doing their parties. They're going down to Mexico for their little Mexico trip. They're doing their parties on the beach. All these things are rituals that surfers did. That's a very good observation. So that's what Ford, that's, that's his Ford, that's the Ford well, the, big, the big observation parallel I have between the two is that they're both obsessed with myth-making. Oh, and that, obviously, And yeah. unfortunately, self-myth-making. And the, th- the thing about John Ford that I found is uh, politically is that I watch this stuff of his... And I find the values in the movie, if I had to give them a modern lens, would be absolutely junk values. But at the same time, I they seem quaint because they seem so distant. 
And there's a part for me where Milius seems like a bridge between that period. I want to talk a little bit about the phenomenon of mainly actors from the 50s who uh, I'm thinking thing, people like Jimmy Stewart or Sinatra or Henry Fondra and mainly Charlton Heston. People who were like robust liberal activists in the 50s, even going into the 60s, and then turn to conservative politics later in life as as the times changed. And how, in particular with Reagan, one of the things that really bugs me in terms of how, how Ford and also on Amelius is there's this feeling of that they present machismo model, strong male leader, and there tends to be especially with the cartoonishness of Milius, this unwillingness to acknowledge the damage of the, or the repercussions of what they wrought. Like, the t- title Apocalypse Now comes from this button that was around USC at the time for it said Nirvana Now. And Milius thought it was funny to put in an Apocalypse Now and then put a mushroom cloud in the middle of it, and he's just like, let's just blow the whole thing up. And that's a funny, nihilistic way of looking at things, right? But, yeah. but it's not a serious way of looking at it. But there, there's repercussions of when, like, actors start to actually buy this stuff and, like, start to buy the reputation that this manliness is the thing that's going to get, lead us all through whatever storms we're going to face. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, the, uh, politics and, and cinema uh, and storytelling is, I don't know, I, I, I don't know how to handle that as well because I am certainly not ultra-conservative and I'm certainly not, I don't own a gun. I'm very, lack of a better word, a big weenie, and so in many ways as a, as a man. <laughs> and but I love these robust or romantic films because that's part, you know the history. And I, I at the end of the you know so the I guess the the takeaway I mean I guess what you're discussing here is uh, do we just you know eradicate machismo in movies uh, because it's bad a fascist characters because of uh, it, it'll get into our uh, policy and some conscious into reality or some i don't know it, 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 you know movies are escape that's the whole you know uh, one aspect of movies is that you when i was a little kid i played with army soldiers now mm-hmm. is it is it politically incorrect to play with army soldiers as a kid now what are they doing on these video games they're well, so violent let's not go in the term of politically incorrect it, yeah. I, i'm i'm saying more in terms of there's repercussions of these images being pushed down to people over and over and over again, and especially when these people become thought leaders, that there's there's no. a, there's a danger in actually buying the some of the re- like Milius Milius a lot of his jingoism rhetoric comes from a love of uh, militarism and just he's stu- he's a fast as you he mentioned wanted, he's, he's a he was disappointed historian. he didn't get dra- he didn't get into Vietnam because of his asthma right he was uh, turned down. He was, I'm trying to remember what movie. The only, I, I keep thinking of Thin Red Line, but what is, is there's Nick Nolte in Thin Red Line. He keeps saying, "I could, you know, I, I should have died in this war." What? Who was? Who am I thinking of? That was like, I didn't get my war. There's oh, some big movie. Oh yeah, I forget which movie that is. Uh, but that's what that's what buys me. Where it's just like, I love war, but I'm never going to go to war. And the thing with I keep coming across, maybe you know more about this. Milius talks about these great moments and great situations where men are, are tried and brought to trial and and he talks a lot about violence and i just i don't is there a significant violent moment in his life no that, he did some hunting out when he was in colorado at school there 
Uh, and there, there's a funny thing about the Jeremiah Johnson screenplay where supposedly uh, one of the things that got written out of it was that he called it liver-eating Jeremiah Johnson because his whole thing with hunting was that you need to see through the repercussions of the hunting. animal dying. Yes, you actually had to face the animal that you killed. And Tarantino talked about going on a duck hunting with him. Uh, I haven't heard. I, I, the, I, I vaguely... That interview just recently on Alamo Draft, uh, New Beverly. He he did an interview with Emilius. What was the story? He just he actually went out duck hunting with him, Zemeckis, Spielberg, and Emilius. And he said they just sat there all day smoking cigars and, and drinking and and they shooting at ducktails or something like well, that. Well, I mean, hunting is one thing. Yeah. And, no, and, I, I, don't can't, I don't know if he's ever had a... And he, moment. He's just, it's the romanticism of it. And uh, again, is are we supposed to damn the romanticism of war? I mean, I, I was even, uh, if you read Bob Dylan's uh, auto, uh, memoirs, he said. Oh, to, he, we got to Dylan. Got to, uh, but we, it, we took a long walk to I get to Dylan. apropos. Dylan said he wanted to go to West Point. He wanted to be, you know, and, and in fact, one of the songs just recently on his new album, he mentions General Patton paving the way for Presley. And I'm like, Okay, Patton. Oh, that's that. well. I'm not damning someone from pro-military views. I'm talking specifically about his views on Vietnam and the Russians at the height of Reaganism. Yeah, well, yeah, Red Dawn. Getting back, to, uh, I mean, I remember enjoying Red Dawn. I might be uh, rode out on a rail for saying that. I th- I think you're going to have way more supporters than I am actually on this. Well, one. if your kids of a certain age love Red Dawn, uh, the, the I you know, in theory, I should be someone who loves it because I was raised on it. Yeah, but yeah, there, I know other guys that just they quote it. It's like one of those films they quote, like they quote Adam Sandler films a certain generation. <laughs> but, yeah, that, you know, the whole fascist aspect. Oh, I did want to say one thing about Big Wednesday real quickly. I did see, uh, I think it was Janet Maslin gave him a bad review because at this time he had such a reputation of violence and Big Wednesday has very innocent fighting in so, it. Yeah. And so she slighted him for it. You know, getting back to the movie, getting back to Big Wednesday. Back to the movie, well, yeah, just back. I, I, let's getting to some of the fun aspects of the movie is what it cast. I mean, I, I was looking at the cast, and it's like, first of all, I, I love Millie's stock company. I, I recognize Bear, but it seems like he was mostly a TV actor. Yeah, he's a TV actor. Gary Lopez, who's an actual surfer, and he's actually playing himself in the movie. Uh, he's like the new breed of surfers near the end of the film. He he goes on to be in Conan. He's one of the Conan's sidekicks or something. Uh, the one person I noted is he had like two shots, but he's high on the credits. Is Freddy Krueger, Robert Edlund, and he's the narrator. He's the narrator. I was trying. I was bugging me this. You know, I'm like, who is narrating this thing? Who's narrating this thing? And why isn't William Katz the narrator? Uh, it, it, I I don't know. Maybe it's supposed to be Barlow, but they actually read. I was trying to find the credit. The only credit I could find was it's Robert. That's Ingram. interesting. William Katz was the most notable performance to me, and the thing like. Uh, trying to come at this movie in good faith if i so blonde so bleach blonde like surfer, if I, surfers <laughs> if i wasn't being so good faith about this i would call it aryan blonde it was so <laughs> do you know any brunette well gary lopez is brunette brown hair and to be fair like compared to william cat like jane michael vincent's a brunette in this movie well let's talk about the three leads before i can start getting more back in the company again it's interesting jane michael vincent is such a weird career and interesting person to study. And I don't know, I, I never thought he got to become a good actor. Yeah, because yeah. no, I, I knew him as a kid on Airwolf, and, and I was looking up his Wikipedia article right before you came up here, and they were trying to say Airwolf was the biggest thing he's known for. But no, the world's greatest athlete, Walt Disney. If you were a certain age, hey, if, you were, if you were my age, 
It's the world's greatest athlete. That's not what the Wikipedia article well, said. Uh, and, and I don't know if you know, but the internet's right on everything. <laughs> no, I, it, it, he 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 uh, spanned a couple different generations. I saw he was in some movies with uh, John Wayne, even. Uh, yeah, I think I can't remember. What, uh, Undefeated, maybe. I think with Rock Hudson. Anyway, he was so good looking, and he was in these all these really interesting films. But he could surf. Cat and Ben Chemical Vincent were actual surfers, and so you get to that, see them. actually That is definitely it. one of the pluses of the movies. Is the, the surfing feels real? Yeah, and their doubles are really done well. Uh, they, and Bruce Surtees, Mr. Clint Eastwood cinematographer, is the cinematographer on it, and they really did a good job. Uh, you, you, if you're watching, you don't really. Oh, you don't think. Oh, that's where they switched out Cat or switched out. I um, was I was paying attention to. So Chemical Vincent is kind of. You know he's stiff. He's not. He's just never did. He's never did loosen up as a really good actor. I think. I mean, even though he's in movies that I enjoy, and I enjoy him actually at some on, on a certain level. But here he is on one side. He's got William Cat. Cat's a good actor. Uh, if from, I know. I know him mostly from Carrie. Carrie, yeah, and he's coming off of Carrie, and and uh, he could have been Luke Skywalker uh, uh, if he had. He's the greatest American hero too. Yeah, the greatest American hero on TV. That was kind of a big thing for him, but. Uh, <laughs> then you got Gary Boozy on the other side, and he's not a surfer, and he was out of shape. He had to get in shape, and he's the mas- masochist is his name, and he's just and John just let him go. I mean, he just let him loose. And well, was it? I, I I don't remember. It was a, one of the Tarantino essays I was reading on it, but wasn't Busey considered like the method actor of his generation for a few years? Well, when he saw Buddy Holly, we all just thought, wow, you know, and, and he was just so. But he he tends. He's like I guess maybe maybe he's this. He's like the predecessor to Crispin Glover, you know. He's just <laughs> oh, well, maybe well, not that bad. Well, I don't know. No, 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 that, that fits just because, yeah. like, well, because especially because Busey has much more notorious later half. But. Yeah. So, and I have to say, uh, there's one scene worth the price of mission is Joe Spinell shows up in the Big Wednesday. Joe, if you know your Godfathers, you know Rocky, uh, you know. Uh, and, and and some of Joe's B movies, he, he is. Uh, you know what? Honestly, I had trouble. I I remember seeing him. I was just like, where do I know him from? And he. Uh, so when they're they're the three of them, William Cat. Oh, you'll see how they all three react to the draft. They all get drafted. They have to go to with, the draft with two other friends too. Uh, and the other, yeah. There's a there's another there's a second layer of friends that you get to kind of know. One of them you'll remember you'll know as Red Brown, who's the TV Captain America. The, uh, he's the big bruiser that comes down and uh, did not put that together. Up. Okay, yeah, wow, that's the TV movie Captain America. The uh, the blondness really came uh, to me in that sequence where the fi- the the first fight in that house because they were all yeah. blonde. And the guy who comes in and starts the fight, that's part of the Miami Vice cast. Michael Talbert. He remember there was like the Crockett and Tubbs. Remember there were two other guys that were kind of like the no. they played off of the other team in Miami Vice. The kind of like the second rate. I'm team. more of a Miami Vice movie guy, Ted. Oh, okay. But Michael Top, uh, that's that when he walks in, I go, Oh, yeah, it's Miami Vice guy. So, anyway, Gary's uh, his character decides he's just going to play absolutely crazy, which he is already crazy and, and to a certain degree, guard, but he's going to make himself even crazier. So, they put him in, they have him go into a crazy lit room with Joe Spinell. And I love on the audio commentary. I laughed out loud when Milia said this. It was like there's, it was, a, there's a funny cigarette gag that we don't want to. Complain yeah. About. So there's like Gary sitting in a chair, separate, you know, socially distanced from the desk of Joe Spinell and Spinell and no and it's Spinell without a mustache, which is really weird. He usually has that pencil thin mustache, and uh, he keeps on asking for a cigarette. And he drops it and he asks for another, and he's trying to take the lighter. We each are going to spoil the. the yeah, guy. I know, but I, okay, I, I just you need to watch the scene. But what I love what Milia says, he goes, "Is a duel to the death." 
<laughs> and I and it's and you think about because Spinell was I hear Spinell was a character too in you know real life, so to put Spinell and Busy in the same room and just let them go, and it sounds like Millie just let them go and just kind of you know wing it, and it's a wonderful little scene. One uh, the tragedy of me really harping on Millie's politics when they don't really matter, especially they seem like they're more of a performance art, is that everyone Spielberg most notably talk about how full of life. Milius is, and you just, and that does come through in the movie. There's just, yeah, it's, and so, anyway, so it, it was funny. I was going through here, like, uh, Jeffrey Lewis is, uh, is he's in Dillinger and Win the Lion and Rough Riders, so the TV uh, miniseries. Have you seen that? I, a long time ago, and uh, and Brian Keith plays Teddy Roosevelt, and Brian Keith plays Teddy Roosevelt in The Wind the Lion. Really? Yeah. Okay. You've seen that. Have you seen, uh, was it Flight of the Intruder? That's the one I have not seen. I'm embarrassed to say. Of all his feature films, I have not seen Flight of the Intruder. I have a copy of it. I just haven't got around to it. But uh, I, I mean, I haven't seen I mean, yeah. I, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, I haven't seen it. It sounds like it's more like work for hire because you get to play with, you know, uh, an army, it's an army movie or a you know, military movie, but he didn't write it, I don't think. Which is interesting. Here's somebody, you know, like here's the really interesting things like when William Katz goes to see, he goes back to see his girlfriend when he gets back from Vietnam. Well, the person he encountered at the door, that's Steve Canally. Can Canally. Canally. He's in uh, Judge Roy Bean and Dillinger, Win the Lion, and Big Wednesday. Roy Jensen shows uh, is a, a stock company. Oh, I, I love this is kind of my Frank Frank McRae, the big black guy. Who he, remember he uh, he's in the he's uh, in the draft sequence mm-hmm. the military uh, he's he's barking off the yeah, orders yeah yeah I, I know who you're talking about he's in Dillinger he's in 1941 he's in Red, he's in Red Dawn one of my favorite one one of the sequence I love I like Red Dawn he's got, he's got a very distinct voice he, he's a history te- he's the teacher that walks out to the p- playground when the Russians are landing in the playground. And gets sh- you know shot. The uh, um, they had the uh, I didn't watch rewatch Red Dawn for this, but in Milius they had the trailer, which was kind of a cool trailer, and that sequence is in there. And he's also got a major part in Farewell to the King, uh, a later day Milius film. Uh, Harry Dean Stanton is in the, several films of his. He's got a guy, a stuntman, who plays parts and plays other stunt parts and uncredited parts. Terry Leonard, if you if you if you're a credit watcher, that's a very familiar name. I, I talked about Gary Lopez, the real surfer. He's in Conan and Farewell to the King. Perry Lang, that's a little sequence at the beginning of Big Wednesday. They come down, uh, it opens up, and, and J. Michael Vincent is inebriated, and he's trying to—he's uh, got a hangover. And I didn't know the movie's bookended by those steps. Yeah, and, yeah. or him oh, the go, gate, him, the him, go, him coming down the steps. The, the, the ruin and the gates represent like ancient civilization. I mean, Perry Lang is in 1941. He's—I think he's part of the Big Red One movie too, a group. But he's the guy he won't—he won't loan. Gary's trying to get a surfboard from him, and he won't. And Gary, he grabs him and does. You can tell it's just improvising. He's like shaking him. That's Perry Lang, and he's in some Milius stuff. Ben Johnson is in a couple of Milius films. Gary and William Kett came back for Rough Riders way later in Milius's career. They actually came. He actually I'm, brought them back. I'm really having trouble remember because William Kett's working right now, and I'm having trouble imagining. Like I, I mean, I've seen modern interviews with him, but I'm having trouble picturing what he looks like now. Besides, yeah. like. His blonde hair is now very silvery. Yeah, it's so funny curly. about Cat. Uh, uh, I, I always thought that Cat and uh, Tom Berenger, which in Sundance the early days, a Richard Lester film, I always thought their careers never really took off to major starring roles. Uh, but they Berenger's almost did with Platoon, though. Uh, yeah, and you know, yeah, that's his biggest, probably his biggest foray. Because I, I always had this feeling that Berenger was a respected actor. I, I mean. Maybe, but no, he is. I think you know. I think, and I think Cat to a certain extent, but in Cat, just uh, 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 it, it started to taper off after Carrie. You know, after once he hit with Carrie, 
he was kind of a hot commodity, but then he kind of tapered off, and then got the world's greatest athlete. And then I think after that, it's you know whatever he can he can grab. But uh, yeah, so there's a huge. That's the one thing about John Ford. Going back to the Ford connection, really is quickly developed a stock company behind in front of the camera and behind the camera, which Ford uh, was a big proponent of. You know, I think if it seems like when they talk about. Uh, stock companies, you know, it's always it, Ford is always brought up, but I mean, l- most directors do that if you really start examining them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, in so much, it, it, I think it's more of a measure of how consistently pe- people make movies, not so much whether or not. Because, like, when you look at someone like Milius, his stock isn't can remember just because after Red Dawn, he's, he hasn't significantly been able to make movies. Right. We, well, he came back, you know, he was going to do this, the Fair with the King, and that's 1989. That was going to be a giant David Lean epic. I thought it was going to be a return to win the lion level of artistry, but it just fell on its face. It just didn't work. Nick Nolte at the time was still a box office draw, but it just didn't. It it, it, it was, I don't know if it was in the editing or I have to go back and see it again, uh, but it just, I've never, yeah, I've never it was supposed to, you know, it was going to be, I'm sure the talk before it and the pre-production and the production, it was going, oh, this is going to be a giant big epic David Lean another Milius epic, and it just didn't perform. Yeah, going back to Milius' love of history and races and Bushido and, and the romanticism, there's this, like, ancient gate that you it bookends the, uh, the Big Wednesday, and it's like that's the way the surfers come and go through the at least these three main surfers that you follow, and they're like royalty. They're, like the, they're part of the King Arthur's court, and there will come a time where you see that one of the surfboard becomes, becomes Excalibur, and Excalibur gets passed along, and and there's a uh, sequence where the three of them are uh, they they reunite to do this royal walk, mm. and uh, that, it's that very Arthurian, and uh, the music is great, and that's where the film go. You go, you get these little bits in these films, that in this film, it's so wonderful, and uh, the music, everything just uh, gets uh, comes together, but it's so loosey. Goosey, <laughs> that I, I I guess that's my but I, again. So I, is Millions's other movies not this loose? I think that to me the Wind the Lion is very structured. Dillinger f- feels like an AIP film, which it was not yet. It, it was yeah, an it AIP was. film, and then uh, Conan. Huh, we haven't even talked about Conan the Barbarian uh, really, uh, and that's that was a big hit for him, you know. And that, yeah, and, 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 and that was it, like the front half of that structured. Yeah, so. Uh, but this one, you know, like I said, it was so personal, and I think he got so, you know, uh, when you get, I think a lot of times the director gets so personal, they don't see what they're doing sometimes. They get, they get so swallowed up in the uh, Yeah, but making... you, you brought up American Graffiti, and American Graffiti is a movie that, like... Uh, George, George is a little, <laughs> he's a, maybe he's an exception. I don't know, I just, I would keep on thinking of, of Peter Jackson with King Kong, and I think, what else, there's a few others. Uh, uh, which, by the way, you, we've talked about this. I'm a huge fan of Peter Jackson's King Kong, even though it doesn't need to be two hours. <laughs> but yeah, there's also the uh, there's a certain uh, couple things that remind me of the Wild Bunch, and he's kind of got a Wild Bunch sort of ending in One the Lion. So he's very enamored of the Wild Bunch, and it's uh, the you know the, the men and the, the walk and and certain things like that. So there's that going for it, which is really interesting. I think here's here's where it, what it nails down to is the positives of him ex- celebrating some of these things sometimes get seen by someone like me as a, at the detriment of somebody else. Does that make sense? Is that unfair? 
Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, yeah, I just... I, um, like, men are men because women are less. And I mean, like, this movie's not a good example of it just because the movie's about the three guys. And so... Well, no, Lee Pacell, his Jemical Vincent, who he eventually marries in the movie, she she goes, you know... She's a great she, performance, but she doesn't have anything written for except... No, gonna, but but her, what little bit of character we get, she's a pretty strong character after uh, after the first after the first part no she's, well she's gone i mean it's, it's just she's a, gone for the rest of it. she's yeah. like she's a she's the dutiful mother to the alcoholic b- baby daddy well if you're going yeah i didn't want to if we want to give that away or not but uh, uh that we, we you gave oh, away that, the we're cig- past the spoiler thing you gave away the cigarette stuff but i can't give away something that happened oh no no we we we're, we're past the, the we're, we're past the spoiler border boundary aren't we she sure. uh, she gets pregnant and she and they're like oh you're going to keep the baby and you know, and and you want to, you know, hook and and she then takes a swig of beer after saying yes. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's the different times. That's sixties, yeah. The the oh, uh, we, uh, uh, speaking of the Mexico sequence, you you get you did see the John Milius cameo, right? Yeah. So yes, marijuana. <laughs> he does yeah. cameos in a lot of his films. Well, so I do have to give credit where a lot of the messiness, like most of modern people, I think, it, it, it will see it in... One of Millie's biggest fans is Quentin Tarantino. He says that Judge Roy Bean is one of the most readable, best screenplays he's ever read in his life. And especially movies like Hateful Eight, maybe a little bit in Glorious Bastards, there's a giant amount of moral ambiguity to the big moments, usually the big violent moments, that really seems to come from Millie's. And, and it, it's... it's and, in here, since this movie's not that violent, the moral ambiguity is things about friendship. It's about letting big loyalty, moments, loyalty, loyalty, big moments pass by. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought Tony Martino up because who did he name drop when he got his Oscar uh, at the Oscar? John Milius? <laughs> yeah, I, that I don't understand. I, uh, we, we we had a long conversation about how he. If pronounced... I ever get the meet Quentin, I want to ask him. Why did you? Is it? Do you always call him John Milius? Yeah. Uh, but that actually, uh, my cinema chat show, I was still on the air at the time. And, you know, pandemics kind of put me on the sidelines. But I did a little tribute to Milius and Robert Bolt, which Milius is a big fan of Robert Bolt, who did Lawrence of Arabia. That was the lineage Tarantino put, right? right. That he said Robert Bolt, writer of Lawrence of Arabia, was... Men uh, of All Seasons, uh, just a great screenwriter. Was Milius' favorite screenwriter. And, and it's weird because screenwriters have all these different benchmarks, but some screenwriters really give Milius like a, as a benchmark of... Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up too because if I recall this correctly, and you might uh, comment on this if you do, or you know, uh, it seems like I think you know t- Millie talks about how he would outprice. He would say he would give the price of a screenplay for this amount of money if he let me direct it. George Roy Bean, yeah, and they, specifically, yeah. and they said no, and then they, and then he got a bunch he, of, he had two different prices yeah. for if if you wanted to buy it without him directing it, and if you lower price if you wanted to buy it with him directing. It. So you he ends up being one of the uh, I remember when I started getting into movies and and found kind of following the industry, he was like the big financial barrier he broke as a screenwriter. He was like the highest. He hit one of the boundaries, and then later on, it was like Joe Astorhaus and Shane Black. Yeah, but it was a big deal because I guess they had, I guess screenwriters were kept, kept down, tapped down for a long time. Well, and in in, in Millie's case, the problem with a lot of screenwriters getting taken down was when they did finally sell their stuff, the movies were changed, and they always hated the final product. And Millie's seems to fit that mold where he like you. I mean, it's not so much he hated the stuff because they obviously he would say. Percentages like seventy percent of the movie was what he'd written things because I mean George Roy Bean is directed by John Huston, like, who is a great screenwriter in his own right. And funny thing was he he uh, they argued on the set, 
And then Houston would have John write scenes that John didn't really want to write. But anyway, John hung in there. And even though they didn't, he, he didn't like the result of the movie, but guess what? He hires John Houston for a major part in Win the Lion. And in other words, he says it's like you go through the you go through the training yeah. with your DI, and then you and you get a, and then you you like him afterwards. And you, <laughs> so he, uh, your drill instructor, you know, and uh, so he uh, put John Houston in the Win the Lion. <laughs> Uh, here's another thing, but going to some of your things about Ford and uh, and political subtext and and how he says on the audio commentary, he personally he, he himself says, "I like sentimentality." So, no, I mean yeah. I I like sentimentality too. I I mean I think especially someone like Milius, who's it's the thing the credit you have to give Milius is that he's a very literary muscular writer, and it's it I mean. He, this, the sentimentality is earned with a lot of character details. Some other cool things about this is just a lot of really fun tidbits. Uh, Barbara Hale is in the movie. She's William Katz's real mother. She was uh, in Perry. She was the long. She was a care. Uh, uh, Wait, part, she's, she's his real mother. His real mother. She's uh, it, that's sitting up there reading Catch Twenty Two as that party's going on. I, that was a funny detail to me for some reason. What, I I had this little pet peeve when people read in movies that Millie's fixes. I hate when people read in movies. They're always at the beginning of a book, <laughs> and she's at the end of Catch Twenty Two. Okay, good good observation there. I didn't even notice that part. Uh, but yeah, that's William Cat's real mother, and so that had an interesting layer. And the, she's uh, she was in Perry. Most people know her from Perry Mason. What what is she in Perry Mason? I've having a fascination she's, with Perry Mason recently, just because I finished the HBO show. Oh uh, well, I, I like for a better word. I'm not a real aficionado on the original. Yeah, I grew up with in the background. She's the secretary, I think. His secretary. Okay. That's, a, no, no. There's okay. A, there's a character in the that's in the new my, HBO that's, version. That's who she is. I'm pretty sure. I'm sure my uh, audience correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, there might listen to the listening audience. Another character actor I, th- I thought was interesting that shows up in it is Fran Ryan, the the lady, the kind of the gruff lady that owns the bar, the the uh, restaurant. Yeah. And she shows up later at the wedding, you know, shushing him. Oh, uh, I, I forgot she was at the wedding. Yeah. The uh, by the way, the bear who's getting married, Sam Melville. He his wife is Millie's second wife. Uh, yeah, well, because a lot of commentary in the documentary was how Bear is based off Millie's and stuff. Yeah. True, very true. And then um, the uh, she, if you know, if you, you'll recognize Fran Ryan right away. She always kind of she was uh, she was Jesse James' stepmother in, in the Long Riders. That's how I really she made a big impact on me in that movie. But she's uh, she's similar to Marjorie Maine. And if uh, a whole different generation before me grew up watching Marjorie Maine, it's kind of this gruff woman. Uh, uh, stern at times, but also playing Ma Kettle, Ma and Paul Kettle. Mm. She was Ma Kettle. So when Fran Ryan came along, a lot of directors used her in those kind of roles, a really stern mother, mm. or the or the you know you kids behave yourself, or you know we, I'm gonna you know uh, kick you out of the door and stuff like that. So that's kind of fun to see her in that. So there's a lot of you know don't get us wrong, and and, and I'm glad to hear Shane liked it a lot because uh, but. It's 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 a it's a and it, I think you know I, I always hear this I don't know how true it is for all these films you always hear the oh it now has a following it got an afterlife on cable the HBO re- the, video the big reason I wanted to watch it was I missed it playing at the Austin Film Festival a few years ago which is a notable screenwriting festival wasn't right? John there they they bring John I in? think it was a period where he. Um, it was post stroke, so he may he they originally wanted him to be there and he couldn't. I think I saw a video of him and Oliver Stone together on the stage talking about 
Warren films. That sounds about right. And that was in Austin, I think. Maybe maybe he was um, there, and I missed. I just missed him. But the one thing I did want to end on is, um, so I, I mean, I brought all this pol- political <laughs> stuff. up. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's politics. Is just you know, it's just uh, scary. It's scary. Yeah, and, and, and I'm and, glad. I mean, you're much more braver than I am. And the thing is, I keep imagining the limited audience we have right now. I know certain people who might have just turned it off right now because a lot of we're in an election year right now. A lot of political talk. The problem with a lot of it is that you turn your ears off halfway through the sentence because you think you know what people are going to say. And especially right now with things as divisive as it is, like we have, there's this tendency to dismiss a person based on their politics, which I got to be honest, I'm guilty of when it comes to Milius. And I've been guilty of it. And the documentary, which I recommend, again, is on Amazon Prime, is a very touching document. And the... Milius basically, as we've mentioned in several points, as a bit born storyteller, suffered a stroke around 2010, and it left him unable to speak for a while. And there's a, I'm spoiling this, but there's a really touching moment in the doc where Spielberg almost tears up talking about it, and he says, nothing worse can happen than a born raconteur like John Milius not being able to talk. And he says, nothing worse has happened to any of my friends than that. And I kind of wanted to end on a positive note that that dog came out in 2013 and there was some footage towards the end of it closer to that date. Milius, as far as I can tell, heard, uh, is back to speaking and he's in public speaking. The, as, actually, I wanted to end on a positive note, but the one place I saw that he did give us, he did speak at and talk at was Jan Michael Vincent's funeral. The uh, funeral. And then uh, they posted this picture, came up on uh, some social uh, platforms, a picture of him with Paul Schrader and Walter Hill, the three of them. Uh, really? Buddy, buddy, yeah. And that's a, that's a very interesting connection because he was executive producer on Paul Schrader's Hardcore, and he was uh, uh, Geronimo. He wrote the screen, uh, a screenplay for Walter Hill's Geronimo mm-hmm. movie. There is a, And Extreme Prejudice, which is, we didn't even talk about some we, of the screenplays. I, yeah, I, I yeah, I, um, I did want to, we should talk about Extreme Prejudice then. Uh, well, I mean... Because that was something he was going to do. Right. Oh, and also, by the way, I, I keep on looking at all these different random notes I have. He he, he claims in the audio commentary that Big Wednesday was going to be a novel originally. Well, I mean, structurally yeah. that fits, doesn't right. it? Right. And then he then he turned it into a movie. Um, Extreme Prejudice, yeah, he was going to do Extreme Prejudice back at this time period, and then they got sidelined. And it finally got, it got resurrected by Walter Hill, and I thought, I remember going to the theater to see it and I thought oh my gosh this is going to be you know uh, lack of a better word testosterone heaven because it's going to be Walter Hill and John Milius together nice. uh, and uh, you got Jerry Goldsmith's score and you got uh, Ry Cooter doing the Mexican music the south of the border Powers Booth Nick Nolte looking trim and, and lean and mean Rip Torn and a wonderful performance It's and, and it, I, I, I'm wondering if Rip's dialogue was the dialogue between the two Texas Rangers, that's where they're playing, Rip Torn and, and Nick Nolte with the big hats. They're Tex- I mean, they're the very uh, archetypal Texas Rangers. That, in fact, that's another movie script he did with yeah, uh, what's-his-name from Bedarsons Creek. Which he supposedly almost ha- uh, thought Eastwood could have been played in. Oh, I know. I wanted to see the, uh, him direct the Texas Rangers. Um, but uh, anyway, the, the Extreme Prejudice, I was a little, I think I was just by so hyped up by it, I was a little let down by it. But now I love it. I go back to it and watch it. It's a weird um, mesh of post-Watergate conspiracy-type government, secret government operations uh, meshing with uh, uh, old cowboy, a Western 
movie, and and it, it uh, once again, it devol it it, it 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 ends up being another wild bunch ending in a way. So there's something about the wind, the line, Big Wednesday. This a lot of them, they, they have that kind of a they kind of dove dovetail into a kind of a big uh, wild bunch. I, I can't. I guess we can't stress how much. Wild Bunch was such a pivotal film for everybody. Uh, the Milius movie I wanted to see, which I don't, I don't know if I don't know if he was going to direct it, but um, the Wachowski brothers were producing a, uh, you know, he he imagined Conan as a trilogy at a certain point, but didn't get the second one. But years later, he was going to do a King Conan that the Wachowskis weren't going to produce. Yeah, yeah, it was going to bring uh, late uh, Arnold back as as you know an older Conan as King. Right, the, the, which we got teased in the first film, you know, the very end where you see him sitting on the throne uh, as a king with the, with the Schwarzenegger's got a beard and everything, and you go, oh, wow, you know, he did a Miami Vice script. He, oh, he did a TV a movie called Motorcycle King. It was all these uh, little riffs on AIP titles it was and uh, Roger Corman title uh, films, and I think Jake Busey's in that. And it's uh, gets called Motorcycle Gang. When was that? Uh, that would have been like uh, early nine in the early nineties. It was like Showtime. It's a Showtime series or an HBO series. And uh, Rodriguez did an episode, and Millius did an episode, and huh. and uh, Road Racers and uh, Motorcycle Gang. And they were all riffing off these titles from these old classic AIP titles. Um, and of course, we've mentioned Rome. He did an episode one of the later day Twilight Zone series. He did a Miami Vice episode. Um, he directed that Twilight Zone episode, didn't he? I, I don't know if he did. I don't. I, I, I got it down here. Well, maybe he did because I have. I didn't really. On my notes. I didn't. Make the case. I also like the fact that, along with Spielberg, he was a big mentor to Zemeckis and Gale. Mm, oh, I I've mentioned this in another podcast. I still I, w- I want to find the earliest draft of 1941, which he before actually before <laughs> Milius took it over. But yeah, but I want to hold your hand and use cars. He's the executive producer mm-hmm. on Zemeckis and Gale's first. To directing, uh, and I, I got to give credit where credit's due. The anarchic spirit, especially with used cars, that's such a cynical movie. That's so fun how cynical it is. Yeah, that's a Milius touch you can kind of feel. Right, and then yeah, and, and, influence. and the nineteen forty one, which is yeah, <laughs> you know, nineteen forty one is just such a huge. I think the carnival. Pro- <laughs> I think the appropriate response to nineteen forty one is yeah. <laughs> it, it's I, I but we're just talking about it. I kind of like I kind of want to see it. Again. I know I I can I can endlessly watch it. I mean that's the crazy thing. I can't defend it, but it's such a it's such over the hill. It kind of reminds me of the uh, David Niven Casino Royale from the late sixties. Oh, that, that's that's way more of a mess. That's a, well, it, and John and John Huston is in that directing a segment. John Huston, uh, every director on that movie directed <laughs> forty five seconds. Yeah. So, but uh, yeah, I, some of some of these giant messes that that appeal to me. Uh, and 41 is uh, obviously one of those. Uh, and, uh, you, yeah, there's a lot of milius, uh wackiness that's in, in, in filtered into it with Zemeckis and Gale and Spielberg and all kinds of interesting things. But, yeah, Milius is just I, – I would tell you, folks, that it just – you. It, I, I, I mean, I guess like Shane said, I guess I've been bugging him about Milius. There's just a lot of fun stuff in Milius. Um, and I, the politics, you know, it's, it's just really uh, interesting because, like I said, I, I – Red Dawn, I'm enjoying. I mean, I could, what do you do with Dirty Harry? Uh, you know, Kale, Pauline Kelly said it's a fascist. I think something like Dirty Harry. Uh, do you, do you, you know, and especially this days and days of the police force being under criticism, you know. There's a, a way of looking at it in a modern lens where, I don't know, maybe I'm being too forgiving of it. Like, there's a modern lens where you think the movie is questioning it, but I guess Dirty Harry's not that way at all. 
I mean, you know, he had the the funny thing was that Dirty Harry was, so, Harry was so, so successful that they he got Milius along with Chimino, Michael Chimino, to make even a more fascist group that Harry goes up against and, and try to out fascist <laughs> Dirty Harry because uh, they make Harry look a little bit more uh, better uh, in terms of uh, Eastwood. Would, I mean, Eastwood's another big uh, obvious hero of yours, and he's someone that I tease you about. Where this yeah. also falls in that problem talking of, to chairs. Well, it's not even that. It's just this like idea of buying the idea of just the machismo leading uh, uh, indecisiveness, and that it's just every uh, all these other things you're worrying about are just don't worry about them. They're just they're tiny little things, and just because these actors buy their own performances. Yeah, but you know, I, I'm thinking, uh, you know, does Red does a movie like Red Dawn, does a movie like Magnum Force. Do these movies, uh, Clockwork Orange or you know Straw Dogs or do these really? Wow, you dropped two into there. The uh, one of the two of these things are not like two of the others. I mean, they're both fascist movies, but they're different in that. Well, I mean, do these really uh, affect people's thinking and minds? Uh, do or can we just say, you know, these are this is a way to live that out vicariously? And not have it in our real life. I mean, I think there's a legitimate argument to be made about some movies like Dirty Harry or or just the way guns are portrayed in movies. That uh, the, this, this idea that America is a gun culture, like it's it's fostered by the way they're portrayed in movies, how they're like easy to use and they solve every problem. Well, I mean, I can't. I I still you know I. I love action movies. I, love, I grew up oh, on cowboy movies. I do. I do. And, and, and there, you, okay, let me put it this way. There was a movie I watched recently uh, on Netflix, The Old Guard. And right. it, it's a very gun-heavy movie. Based and, on a comic book. Yeah, a Greg Rickard comic book. I had a big problem with it because of how guns were solving everything in the movie. And it wasn't because the movie had guns in it and had action sequences based on guns. It was that it was so self-serious with all the guns and the guns solved everything. It was so dramatic and weighty, but the guns were a... Might is right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, what do you what do? You do? I mean, I'm going to show... I'm going I'm to really uh, get off my lawn kids uh, moment here, but it's like, uh, did you ever play Grand Theft Auto? Yeah. Did you like Grand Theft Auto? Uh, I mean, I played it. What is the purpose of Grand Theft Auto? What is the, the mission statement of the game? Uh, I played a lot of the free roam thing where I think at one point I grabbed a, a rifle and started shooting somebody in the head. But. See, I mean, I, I look at that. I'm just like, you know, and, and, and you know, am I supposed to get up, you know, I, and I get I just toss around my head. You know. I, and I feel like such a school mom for doing the like, what movies cause violence? Like I, like, yeah. and, and, and everyone's perceptible. But at the same time, clearly everyone loves guns without just, I mean, not yeah. really using them, it feels like. But you know, like getting okay. This, another a big influence and fan of that Milius is this is Sergio Leone, and oh, he, so we got Dylan and Leone. <laughs> uh, is there is there a B coming up? Uh, there can be, there can be, because I think Warren was actually what was he up for? He was up for a part. I really wasn't asking. For, anyway, Betty was up for something, and but it, it didn't work out. What was I going to say? Uh, uh, Leone, I love those films, and maybe because at the time they thought they were very violent. You know now they're just so tame. They're almost art films in a way, in a, in a weird way. And the and the and the gunfight is really just over with real quick. It's the build up and the art, the, the 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 cinematic artistry of having 
with the editing and music and everything to play with that. And it's just how do you handle all this stuff because it just now. So I don't know. It's just weird. I just but I remember Red Dawn. I thought, oh, this is kind of cool. It's kind of you know. There's a difference between presenting violence as solving solutions and presenting violence as a visceral thrill mm. or and i i mean i keep wanting to bring the tarantino argument to it that like he says every single viewer knows this is fictional and he, he and i just don't 100 percent agree with him on that that's interesting to say because you go back to shakespeare you go back to the bible i'm not saying art is is responsible for people's actions like don't don't put peg me as no i'm not saying i'm no i'm, I'm saying what i mean i'm i'm not i'm not pegging you i'm i'm, I'm just trying to say how do you handle violence? And then Quentin says it's that's he he has no problem. It's part of storytelling. Well, uh, I think it's just there's something to be said about like Tarantino's violence. Like the you see people suffer from it. Like my two, the two gunshots I think are the best gunshots in uh, cinema history are Steve Martin getting shot in the knee in Grand Canyon. And the bullets in uh, Three Kings, where you see what happens to the inside of it. The thing of it's like gun, this romanticized idea of guns with actors who are trained to shoot blanks, and that they just just killing bad guys willy nilly and just solving plot problems with it's like punching someone in the face. It's just like making someone go away, a bad person go away. What do you think? What do you think about the ending, uh, the violent ending in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? It makes me laugh every time because <laughs> it's so over the top and cartoony. Uh, but uh, it's, it's, like, it's like it's like well, well these, I, these, it's, these, it's like I watched it recently with someone that didn't laugh, and I just kept thinking in my head like, you, you got to keep in mind if she, if he doesn't throw that uh, can of dog food at her at her nose, they're going to rip a baby out of someone's stomach here in a second. Well, I don't know that's the weird thing. It, you know, if you know if you are uh, if you're thinking about it on different layers, it goes. This is. This is our, our this is our artistic comeback at the violence that was so unimaginable in reality, and and that. Look, look, let me put it this way: I am never going to ever say that an artist shouldn't use violence. I'm not even going to say an artist shouldn't use guns. I just don't like the reliance on Hollywood as guns as a plot device, just to solve problems, and then not especially as. We're talking about Milius here, a man who's been he's he like he thinks he's been blacklisted, even though some people try to say he wasn't. Um, a system that is so full of groupthink and liberal way of thinking, but at the same time, when it comes to guns, they're the ones that are perpetuating this way more than anybody else. I mean, there's an argument to be made right now that the gun industry is being propped up by Walking Dead and uh, people buying guns to fight off the zombie apocalypse. Yeah, apparently, uh, Milius and Charlton Heston, uh, NRA members. Yeah, they uh, they actually stopped a, a overtake of uh, a militia movement in the NRA. They actually teamed up together and stopped it. What happened? They were, I, I guess, this one faction was going to try to take over the NRA in terms of a, a militia type aspect of a group, and they the two of them stopped it. Well, I mean, again, this is. Uh, I keep thinking of Charlton Heston's. I think it's a. I think it's got to be his last cinema appearance is the saddest one. Where, oh, yeah. Yeah, Bowling for Columbine, where he's just kind of, Michael Moore just, just gang rushes him and just catches him unawares. And, and again, Charlton Heston was a giant uh, 
political force. Well, much less. there's a, there's these wonderful pictures of uh, uh, I, I think he, uh, civil even, rights protesting on the Lincoln Memorial, and you see oh, yeah. you see Heston uh, side by side with Brando and Belafonte, and uh, it's really interesting. I, I can't uh, remember where I read it, but I read, it was, someone was talking about that Heston probably until his dying day thought that his gun right advocacy was a fight for freedom and liberty, and that he still considered himself a, a bleeding heart liberal. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's politics. Woo. Uh, yeah. But don't, you know, I, I really, it's, uh, if this, that, that scares you. I mean, Big Wednesday is a lot of fun. It's just a coming of age film. Uh, uh, I mean, there's some, you know, fist fights, but uh, it's more of a, a, a macho surfer dudes. <laughs> yeah. And I, this, this gets to the question, which I think is more my problem as a viewer than uh, uh, someone watching this movie normal is just the baggage that comes with it. And I think, I, I want to give credit where credit's due or blame where blame's due. That Milius making himself a larger-than-life personality and making a personal movie, you have to read some of his personalities. But all that being said, this is not this is a fun movie, a nostalgic movie, a romantic movie, a uh, very sentimental movie about free pe- friends keep wandering in and out of each other's lives. Right. Do you think? Do you think if somebody coming into this? Uh that has no clue about Milius at all would enjoy this film. The sad thing is, you know, we've t- our, the emphasis over our conversations, the years you put emphasizing Milius, I've always thought you emphasize him more than anyone else. He was the movie brat that, like you said, maybe isn't considered as should be in that pantheon anymore. And right. So I think the majority of people watching this are going to have that reaction. Well, yeah. So, but, but you, I, don't you think that, and yeah. they're going to enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, they will. They will enjoy it. No. Especially yeah, yeah. not knowing the baggage. Uh, right. They will. Uh, they will enjoy this movie. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a lot of fun. And and the, the, the I should I should name it the composer's name Basil. Basil Pazliadoris. Yeah, he was. He was a USC person too. He um I recently saw um I think it was Paul Verhoeven's first movie which he scored and it, that's a great score too. Yeah, and he uh, this is his first film score. Uh, soundtrack. This is his first score. Yeah, first film score. Yeah, oh, I mean, feature so film score. cool. I mean, he hits the ground running, and then with Conan. Uh, I want to say I this kind of what I was reading about him a little bit today makes me think that in some ways uh, the sound of soundtracks was influenced around the time of this Conan soundtrack huh. in terms of like you know when along came Horner and uh, and then we talked this, about this, this is a very Horner score that's and, a fascinating it's Horner before James Horner before Horner too. and Elfman you know uh, uh, comes in and, and defines the superhero film uh, Millie, uh, Polidorus is kind of the Big Varhoven Emilius films. So you kind of define that era a little there, bit. There's a really touching moment at the end of the Emilius um, documentary where, and uh, when in the throes of after a stroke, Emilius' uh, son is a big interview subject in the movie, and Emilius can't talk, and they don't even know if he's going to even respond to anything. Um, one of the first things the son does to get Emilius to respond that it works is playing the Conan theme. Dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Yeah. Um, also, I, here's another thing, uh, just a real side note. This is just, I, I wanted to throw this in because I've been obsessed with, uh, the, uh, at the time, like I said, like going back to the, at 78, 79, 80, I was so obsessed with the movie Bratz, the whole era, and all of them, De Palma and, and Lucas, everybody. And so I, I was starting to get more aware of different cuts. Apparently, when it went to eight, when it went to cable, when it went to HBO, or there, there, I don't know where I read this, but it, uh, he he trimmed it, or he he did a different cut for the cable, and I don't know what version is on the home video. I assume it's the HBO or Showtime, whatever he did when he cut it. Uh, 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 when it get, went to home video, we're talking about Conan, right? No, um, uh, Big Wednesday, 
And then make it even more complicated. Uh, I used to, uh, again, excuse me, uh, uh, some of my viewers, uh, listeners. Uh, I used to, Playboy magazine would have every once a year, I think near the end of the year in December or November, Sex in the Cinema. And it was always, you know, they would always uh, I, highlight. I grew up with that. Too. Yeah, and I would always, I was always, always, you know, seeing, oh, what, you know, sex scenes are in, in movies every year. And there's this, they had Big Wednesday in there, and he had Patty DeArmanville, which is William Cat's girlfriend, had William Cat and Patty DeArmanville making out in the beach. And it looked so like there was some nudity or something. And I'm like, that's, that's not in the movie. Yeah, and the then movie. I'm looking at my CD today, I'm looking at the booklet, there's another scene of Patty DeArmanville and William Cat in bed, in a bedroom somewhere. That's not in the movie. This uh, wasn't in the theatrical use. All. So I don't, and I don't know. The, 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 the one in the Playboy article was not in the mo- theatrical or the 60 millimeter uh, print or it's, uh, when it showed up on the HBO. So, yeah, so I, the, I'm, I'm, you know, again, there, you know, every film has all this wonderful uh, missing stuff that would be very interesting to see, but, you know, it, we, it, it, it's not to be. I mean, we get some of it, but we don't get all of that. Well, I guess that's it for this episode. Um, I'm going to get on my surfboard and go uh, surf off. On the big, I'm going to catch a wave. Catch a wave. Uh, no. Going with our generational differences. I'm thinking <laughs> of a Weezer song right now. So That's it for this episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening.